about chip manufacturing, all of that together is because that's one little microcosm of the technology that is exploding right now. Uh, the battery technology is exploding right now. I mean, well, literally in some cases. Yeah. Uh, you see what I did there with the explosion and the, yeah, that, that happens. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. Oh, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and mm -hmm. bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to the you dated yourself this tape will destruct your podcast tape is about to self-destruct that's why you can't find the tape in it anymore <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old and uh, the information that we do present in this podcast we get from sources we think are very reliable but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else we just do the best we can the information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. I said I was going to talk about computer chip manufacturing, how we do it, why it's getting better, all that good stuff. Most people don't know how any of this happens. It's kind of like if you ask an eight-year-old how the light turns on, they just point at the switch. Well, how does it work? Some of you listening know. Those are probably the people that are going to get a kick out of this part. So how you make a, a semiconductor at the most basic stage is you take a very flat piece of uh, sil silicon, not silicone. That's that's different stuff. Silicon. Um, and it's it just looks like a little piece of black glass. You've all seen it. They lay it out and they put a photosensitive coating on it. So they just paint it with this photosensitive stuff. Only they can't use a paintbrush. So usually the way it's done is it's sprayed on and then they're spun or it's dripped on and they're spun individually. All of these things so that they get an even coating across it. And then they're heated so that you get a uniform kind of photosensitive layer on top of this thing of glass. It looks like black glass. Then it's put under a micro projector. So it's like a, a, a movie projector on an extremely small scale. And it's focused on this photosensitive layer. It's very much like film de development, by the way, just as it's almost exactly film development. Um, this photosensitive layer is exposed to this projector. 
It generally only takes a few seconds of exposure. And then the chips are taken and put in a development bath, which etches into the layer where it's been, um, into that photosensitive layer, so that the silicon's exposed through the layer. And then it's put in an etching bath, which kind of digs into the, it's like an acid that, that digs into the glass of the silicon. So you have a very, very, very light, even etching underneath where that projection was exposed. And then the photosensitive uh, layer is removed and replaced and another projection is laid on top of it. And another etching and another um, layer of metal and phosphorus is used to fill in the gaps where the projector has, has changed the photosensitive layer. So you can do layers and layers of metal additives, gold at, at the micron layer, um, to connect one projected etching with another. By layering again and again these photosensitive layers on there, shooting a projector on it, using something to inlay a metal into that spot that's been changed by the projection. It's, it's like the old school darkroom photo development that some of us experienced in school, only that's used in a factory setting across thousands and thousands and thousands of chips at a time. You can see why the manufacturing process for this to put it lightly, it's extremely exact and also quite cumbersome because each chip has to be tested. Each chip has to be exact. So you can see why people aren't as involved in this process as they used to be. When it was first developed, every step along that path was the, the chip was positioned under the projector by hand. Little fingers were involved in, in placing that chip there so the projector could go in. This is why chips are a lot cheaper than they used to be, because machines can position them and move them a lot faster through that same process. And we're getting better at that process. The projector can project at smaller and smaller and smaller wavelengths. There's a three nanometer chip coming out next year. That, the, the, that is mind boggling. A, a nanometer is a millionth of a meter. And it's, three of those big that's the size of of the circuits that are on this chip that's just that's that is tiny uh and there's no i mean when you get that small there's no real way of comprehending the size it's so small uh, when people measure against the size of a grain of rice or a hair it's that those are way too big to use as a measurement. <laughs> you can't do this. And, and that is where we are right now. We're down at the three nanometer layer. And in the middle of that, a new technology is approaching that is about to completely wipe the floor with this amazing older technology that's getting more and more refined. It's going to wipe the floor with this technology the way digital photography wiped the floor with the old darkrooms. Because using some of the same techniques, we're able to start building quantum computers now. And for those of you who've heard the words but don't know what they mean, computers run on gates. They're little gates that are either on or off, open or closed. If they're closed, that means they're, they have the, the, the circuit is running, that's on. 
So it seems a little backward. You would think closed would be off, but it isn't. That's not how electronics work. So when the gates are closed, then it's open. And when they're, when it, then, then the circuits connected, it's on. And, and when the gates are open, it's turned off. This is a switch in the wall. This is how electricity works in your light. Those things at a very, 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 very small scale are what causes a computer chip to make calculations. And the world of quantum computing just take, took a huge leap forward this week. And, and I will tell you what's, what that is. It's in Australia, published in, and this was on yesterday, published in Science Advances, which is a journal for electronics. The University of New South Wales in Australia published on a new way of controlling millions of quibits at a time. What's a quibit? Remember when I was talking about the gates? They're either open or closed. They're either on or off. If they're on, it's a one. If they're off, it's a zero. Zero or one. Right. Well, if you think about your light switch on the wall, sometimes you have a dimmer switch. There's a lot of variability between off and on. You can go all the way up and down the, the brightness scale, all the way up to maximum brightness, all the way down to almost off, but not quite. Those are very exact forms of measurement, by the way. Well, a quantum computer is going to do that. And one of the problems that we've had in science is trying to figure out how to control enough of these quibits, which are basically all of the variability between zero and one, all the fractional values in there. How do we control those and make sure it's right? And we've been having to put these like wires right up next to the, the chip in all the places where a, a quibit might mean, like one wire per quibit, which gets to be really hard for manufacturing, to change the magnetic field around it. Well, this new development is a magnetic field that can be applied with a lot of variability across lots of those areas at once, which keeps the heat down. Why is this groundbreaking? Because processing speeds are about to increase. And by about to, I mean in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see an increase in processing speeds that's like all of the processing speed increases over the last 50 years combined. Uh, we'll, we'll still have to figure out how to run software on it because all the software is running on um, the, the, the old gate system, the zeros and one, and that's what binary is, which incidentally was developed in the mid 1600s by a guy named Leibniz, who's also the guy that came up with the word calculus, was a compatriot of Newton, only he lived in Germany rather than the UK or at the time England. So the technology that we're using on the software end, and to some extent, the hardware end is derived from stuff from the mid-1600s. It's a, probably a good time to transition to the next, next layer. The fact that it's happening now in our lifetimes is just fantastic and amazing. Uh, what is that going to do for the future? A lot. Uh, it's it's kind of like in, in the late 1970s, if you asked somebody who was really into computer science what it was going to do for the future, they would wax eloquent about all these really technical things that nobody really understood, but they were all excited about it. And and why? why? Well, that's where we are now with quantum. The, the ideas for what we can accomplish with this stuff don't exist yet. It's that new. It's going to be a massive push forward 
And the leaders in development of quantum computing, even though I just said a big development came out of Australia, are by far American companies. The Chinese are trying to compete with us on this. Uh, there's a lot of folks in, in the race, but the Americans, as is usual, are the leaders in innovation. We're way ahead of the competitors on this. So just keep that in mind. We're getting better methods of making the chips that we already use. Intel is back in the game. They have a completely new technology that's been tested in the prototype form and makes really great chips. And now they're scaling up. It's going to take a few years to do that. Other chip processors are likely to fall behind on this because it's a big new investment on Intel's part. Now, the danger is that quantum computing comes out right in the middle of them trying to reap their benefit from this. I don't think it will. I don't think it's going to be that soon, uh, not three years out there. But it means that we're just like what happened in the energy side of things with fracking and America saying we need to be energy independent and being scared about it for long enough. We're now fully aware and beginning to be afraid of how we're dependent on other parts of the world for electronics, which is easily as important as gasoline. So this is a big, big deal. We're beginning the process with new technologies, just like we did with fracking. We've had enough of a depletion of our supply that we recognize that our day-to-day -day existence depends on having this stuff and we can't depend on the rest of the world. So we're going to be doing it. And that's awesome. This is The Personal Wealth Coach. We were talking about chip making and design last hour, and I said Intel's got a new technology. I actually went into some of how chip making works, and they have really complicated names for the process that I just gave you, and their new technology is called EMIB, or Embedded Multi-Die Interconnect Bridge. Yeah. That's the mouthful. EMIB is a mouthful. It sounds like the electronic version of a Will Smith movie. Um, but really what it is, is the ability to lay out a lot of patterns on one piece of silicon and etch them all at the same time. Where you used to have, to have different layering approaches and uh, things to to prevent the etcher from leaking over to other parts of the chip and at the small scale, you could see where that would be difficult. They have figured out a way of combining the etching and multi-layering process to make it faster and cheaper. And I won't go into a whole lot more because the, the terminology that they use gets over my head quickly. Um, and, and I've been reading this stuff for years. So it's new stuff. The terminology is they've figured out a way of laying chemicals on a strip of silicon so that it works all at once instead of having to be done in multiple layers. And I think that's awesome. Uh, Intel's back in the game. Uh, and the reason why I was talking about that, the reason why I was talking about quantum computing, about chip manufacturing, all of that together is because that's one little microcosm of the technology that is exploding right now. Uh, the battery technology is exploding right now. I mean, well, literally in some cases. Yeah. Uh, you see what I did there with the explosion and the, yeah, that, that happens. 
there are new types of batteries in development and in research right now at the academic level and for sure at the battery manufacturing company level. Uh, the use of aluminum air batteries or iron air batteries or lots of different types of metals in connection with air. Whoa, that's cool. People haven't heard of this before. Well, exactly, because it's new. Uh, there are energy densities that make lithium ion look weak, extremely weak. And it made a lot of the earlier, the lead acid battery look extremely weak. So just keep in mind that we're making massive leaps forward across the board here as this new technology of, of batteries is being new technology. Batteries have been around a long time. The need for battery density and the profitability for having energy-dense batteries is causing a gold rush. It's causing people to rush out there uh, engineers in this case, electrical engineers, and um, uh, in some cases, geologists are involved in this because they study the composition of the metal down and metallurgists are involved in battery manufacturing. It's weird, but not really. Uh, it's something that we are developing a new technology. And this is, I, I'm sitting in a converted garage in my house to do this transmission to talk on the radio and on the podcast and on the internet. And that tells you something about where technologies come from. Sitting here across from me are three large tubes with tubes. And by tube, I mean like a glass tube that used to run a television. It was the top of the line projection television one of the last analog televisions to be made. It was the pinnacle of analog technology. Why do I have these tubes here? Because when you look at them, it is a vacuum tube with gases in it. So it's not properly a vacuum tube anymore. It's a tube with different types of gases in it with an extremely complex web wiring of copper wiring around the base of the tube so that electricity can be introduced into that web wiring in differing patterns to create different magnetic fields which excite the gas inside the tube the light can be projected through and make freaking images. Think about that for just a second. We're using networks of wires to excite gases to create different images. And that's old technology. The complexity of that technology is just completely off the charts and we consider it an old dead analog technology. We're moving that way in a lot of different areas with batteries, with processing power, computer chips in general. The way we look at what a pixel is on our computer screens, uh, our grandkids won't know what pixels are because they're not gonna be relevant. It's kind of like talking to somebody about an early Nintendo game and in the newest of kids today are going to be like, what is that? Why would you deal with that thing? Uh, a lot of our terminology has to change because we're in a massive transition. When I say massive here, you know, people talked about the information age after the, you know, we had the industrial age and then the, in the information age. We don't have a name for this yet. You know, they used to say the Silicon age or the... We're moving into a new era that hasn't even been named yet. 
with the information, you were talking about information age. Well, that's kind of like in the 1960s when they named the artwork of the era modern art. They never thought that in the future, other people might consider modern to mean something other than what they did. So when you go to a museum today and you go to the modern art section, it does not mean contemporary art. That's what they call it now. <laughs> it's not modern. It's from the 1960s when that was modern. Um, that's, that's what I think of when people say the information age because we're about to have an order of magnitude speed increase over what we had before when we called it the information age. That means, what is it, we're going to call this the hyped information age? It is definitely different than what we've experienced from the 1990s through now. The last several decades, the last three and a half decades of information age, we're about to experience something that makes that look not like information at all, like the telegraph was an information age. And, and that's where we're going. Just, so just be aware of that. When people are talking about stock predictions for the future, it depends on what stocks you're talking about. It depends on where you are invested. When, say, when people say stocks in general are going to be up whatever in the future, are they looking at the rest of the stuff that's going on? The only reason why stocks, why companies should make a profit is if they're selling you something that you believe is adding value for the price that you pay for it. That's the only reason they should be making a profit. So if you're buying, if you see stuff that's going to improve your life and cause you to do better in your life by buying it, that company should be more profitable than a company that's selling something that you don't need. It's pretty simple. There's a whole bunch of new stuff that we don't even know we need yet that's going to be introduced over the next decade. Lots of it, lots and lots of it. Some of it is going to be packaged in the same products that we use today. So when we get into a car, General Motors, Ford, all of the major automotive companies across the planet, not just in the United States, are saying 10 years from now, at least half, and a lot of them are saying a lot more than half, of the automobile, automobiles manufactured will be electric. And I can hear some of the conservative listeners out there going, oh, why are they doing this? Why are they? It has nothing to do with emissions. That's kind of nice. The governments are pushing on that end. It has to do with efficiency and price. If they can give you the same quality of product for less money and less maintenance, they're going to do it because that's what we're asking for as the marketplace. When you have thousands or sometimes tens of thousands of moving parts in an internal combustion automobile and you can replace it with dozens of moving parts, maintenance price goes down. If, if the motor, and this is something I have had issues with for many decades, my entire um, understanding life is that when a, a vacuum cleaner stops working or Anything else that contains a motor inside it, an electric motor, uh, an electric fan, um, you just go down a list of anything that has an electric motor in a washing machine. Usually the part that broke has nothing to do with the motor because motors basically last forever unless you, over, you, you overcharge them and, and melt the copper. Motors are durable. The, when, how long does it take for a 
for a magnet to stop being a magnet if you keep charging it? Well, never. Uh, does copper eventually get brittle? Yeah, maybe in a couple of hundred years. So we've been throwing away pieces. It sounds like I'm kind of on a tangent here. I'm not. Those are the parts that we're using for electric cars. Those things just basically, unless there's something really wrong, they don't break. But if you think about the number of things that break in an internal combustion automobile, it sounds like I'm um, against the internal combustion automobile. I'm not any more than I was against the, 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 the tube television. I just waxed eloquent about the intricacy and the technology that was used to create, I mean, freaking exciting gases to make pictures. And we did it without a computer. That's crazy. And we moved on to digital screens, which are even more complex, even clearer, uh, even able to be projected larger with more detail. Same thing's happening with internal combustion. You don't have to have this massive, intricate, and beautiful design when a simple design will do it better. And this will take that political lean out of it. It isn't about emissions, that's a nice benefit. It isn't about cleaning up stuff. It's about what is a viable economic alternative. If you can make an electric car and we have the technology to get the batteries down in price, and that's already happening. We're watching that all over every, I mean, the number of people getting into battery technology is amazing. There are shortages and things causing them to be more expensive today, but the number of new startup battery companies in the United States and in Europe and in Australia, they're just huge numbers of them. We have an explosion going on here that's like the beginning of the internal combustion engine days. When, when Henry Ford said, here's an internal combustion engine, he had a few years where nobody else was doing it. But not long after that, 15 years later, there were over 500 automobile manufacturing companies in the United States. This is what happens when a new technology is, in, is, is let out, is that you have an explosion of people going, oh, I can do that too, and I bet I can do it better. And then competition comes in. You can tell when a technology has reached maturity because it tends to get consolidated to just a few companies. It gets consolidated and consolidated and consolidated. And with antitrust laws, that generally means three companies. And if you think of all of the major industries that only have three companies doing it, before antitrust laws, it would have been one company doing it. And we're saying, no, we got to keep competition up or they'll have total control of the pricing and they, they'll be able to, to have leverage over everyone. So three is a good number. That consolidation only takes place in a mature technology that's already being really refined. And if you think about that in automobiles, if you think about, I'm sure you guys can come up with the, with the examples on your own here. When you consolidate an industry that much, and you get more and more refined on how you do it, you start to pinch out all the efficiencies you can make. At some point, you still have to burn gasoline to make an internal combustion engine work or, or hydrogen. You have to burn something to make it work. And that means that, that the efficiency 
eventually gets lost. There's, there's some point you can't improve inf- efficiency anymore. We're not anywhere near that point, just as a side note. We could become a lot more efficient in how we burn gasoline. We're still moving along that line. But a lot more efficient is, is based on the incremental changes we've made over the last 10 years. If you think, um, you know, if, if 24 miles per gallon is, is about average today and we want to go to 48 miles per gallon in 10 years, we can't do that on average with the internal combustion engine. Can't do it. Well, why not? Well, because we still have to burn the gas and our technology hasn't increased that much. You still have to have enough gas burning to move a cylinder. Uh, And cylinders have weight. So you have to figure out ways of making the cylinder more efficient or making the motor more efficient or all of that stuff. Because believe it or not, we're not good at making gas burn any differently than it already does. We can compress it. But that technology doesn't move. That's the same. We have to change all the things around it to make it better. When you have a completely different technology that's using um, less inefficient methods, and this is the real kicker here. Long term, we lose a lot of heat in an internal combustion engine. In fact, we have to use energy to cool it. That's what a radiator is. Because if you overheat your engine, it won't work. And yet we've got a fire in there. So we're using a bunch of energy to keep the energy from being there. Where if you could be more efficient and say, let's use as much of the energy as possible, that excess heat energy, what can we use it for? Well, that's what is the new technology. This is what the replacement technology is. It's across the board, though. I talked about batteries. I've talked about uh, chips. I've talked about electric vehicles. If you think about any major aspect of your day-to-day life, any major aspect of it is going to change. Will it change the chair that you're sitting on? Probably not. It might. I mean, some people are sitting on electronic chairs at this point, but it's going to change almost everything else. It's going to change how we do business. It's going to change our profitability models. It's going to change the speed at which we do things. Uh, And, and, most of the United States' economy is based in service and consumer items. So service, how does service get better from quantum computing and electric vehicles? Come on, Jake, how is that going to make uh, IBM better? Well, IBM's working, working on quantum computing. That's probably not a good example. How's it going to make a financial company do better? Well, if we have software that's able to compute a lot of the things that cause people to actually have to to create kind of a manual form of calculation in the computer. If we have software that's doing that already, then it saves time, eventually saving lots of time. And it's across all things. Engineering today looks very different than engineering 20 years ago. When you sit down, you don't have a drafting table that you're beginning your design on. You have a computer. And quite often, the computer already has a lot of the designs that you need pre-existing to lay out the majority of what you're trying to accomplish for you. So the, this comes back to what is the success quotient for humans in general, the ability to have a memory that's not just residing in our head, the ability to use the compendium of human memories to create something better. And computers and processors 
and uh, all the technologies that we've talked about will make that easier. Uh, if we have electric cars, they're a lot easier, a lot easier to maintain, a lot easier if they already have a computer in them to go to self-driving. And eventually that's going to save a lot of lives. So am I optimistic about the future? Yes, absolutely, positively, off the charts, optimistic about where we're going. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about taxes. I'm just talking about technology, innovation, productivity, the kind of building blocks of our economy. Thank you very much for listening, if you have. If you haven't, then no thanks to you. Um, yeah. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting locally during the week at... 254-947-1111. Uh, real live people during the week, voicemail during the weekend, and that is also 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can email us through there, contact us through there, podcasts, newsletters, all that good stuff. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.